You're listening to the Inglewood College Podcast. Inglewood College is a ministry of Inglewood Baptist Church in Jackson, Tennessee. We believe that just because this season is temporary doesn't mean it can't be deeply transformative. Love God. Love people. Serve the world. We're starting a new series tonight, so you guys won't, uh, won't miss anything. Um, but we're starting in the middle of something. So it's kind of like we're starting something new, but we're starting right in the middle, and uh, it's going to be interesting, right? But we're, we're choosing to start a new series right in the middle of a book. Uh, we're going in the middle of the book of John. So it's a new series called The Time Is Now. And I, I called it The Time Is Now for a few reasons. One of those I'm going to get to in just a minute when we start talking about chapter 13, which is where we're going to start the series uh, in verse 1. But generally speaking, uh, this is a point in the Gospel of John where things ramp up. So chapter 13, uh, you know, rubber meets the road kind of thing. This is, this is where things, uh, some things really start to happen, and they happen quickly. And uh, as we kind of get into each part of this series, the response to the text each week could easily be stated something like, the time is now, so fill in the blank. And so tonight, we're going to be looking at chapter 13, and here's a spoiler for the message, a little summary for you. That this message could be summed up by saying, this, the time is now, so follow the example of Christ's love for us. So the time is now, follow the example of Christ's love for us. John chapter 13, starting in verse 1, going through 17, and then I'm going to pick up in 31 and go through 38. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, that was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I pick it up in verse 31. When he, that is Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. 
tonight, you know, that main point of that idea of um, we are following Christ's example that he set in love for us. It really comes from verse 34. That's kind of a focal point verse in the text, and maybe one that you've heard before, where he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. And so he's saying this, you know, you're to love each other just as I've loved you. But in a real sense, we can't exactly love the way he has. We can't exactly do what he went on to do. Because in the next 24 hours, Jesus would be arrested. He would be falsely accused. He'd be mocked, beaten. He'd be nailed to a cross to die. And the worst part, he would bear the judgment and shame that we deserve to experience from the Father so that we might not have to. This is what he did for us. And so some of you, some of you have heard this before. You've heard the gospel before, and it's not meant a whole lot. And the thing is, if Jesus' love, if, if we can't look and see Jesus' example and see how great his love is for us, we're going to have a hard time loving anybody else. It's interesting. Um, I was just having a conversation with a college student recently, just a couple weeks ago, and he expressed that I think up to this point, he had been working so hard to try to get right with God. And, and it, it had always been about, like, what he could do, what he could bring to the table. And he was trying to get right with God, and he was doing it in all his own effort. And he came to the realization, like, I can't do this. I can't make myself right with God. And it was in that moment he finally put his faith in Jesus for real for the first time. That he really needed Jesus to be the Savior for him. That Jesus really does love him in this way. He's not looking for him to fix himself or get right. And he finally leaned into this love of God for the first time, seeing that Jesus came and he died and he was raised for us, that he did something that I could not do for myself. And some of you may be in that same boat tonight where you just have not really grasped how much God really loves you. Maybe it's that you haven't grasped quite how much you have sinned, how much you deserve God's judgment rather than his love. Maybe you realize pretty, pretty easily how much you've sinned, but you haven't quite realized that God loves you still, even though you've sinned that much. Wherever you are, you know, if, you are, if you're someone in here and you know Christ and you have accepted uh, him as your Savior and you know his love for you, lean into that tonight as we think about this, as we look at Jesus' love for us and his example and realize, man, if he does not love me, and if I do not lean into this kind of love and think on this love often, I'm not going to love people well. And if you don't know that you are in right relationship with God, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus alone, the time is now to do that. The opportunity is there. The work is done. In a few weeks, we're going to talk about how it is finished. The work of Christ on our behalf is finished and done, that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved and can truly know that he loves you. So don't go another day trying to be right with God by your own effort. Jesus did what he did because he knew you couldn't, and he loves you so much. And even though we can't do exactly what he did for ourselves or for anybody else, we can't do those specific things that he has done for us. You know, there's a way that he had to love us, and specifically only he could do it, and he has done it. But we can follow his example of love put on display here in chapter 13. So the testimony of John, who was there, when this happened, he lays these things out. And we're going to be able to see some of what his love looks like in ways that we can emulate that. So what kind of love has Jesus loved us with? 
We know about his sacrifice. We know ultimately about what he did on the cross for us. But what kind of love, if we could describe it, what kind of love has Jesus loved us with? And so we got four points that are just one word to describe his love. And then we're going to get after those four points, we're going to come back, we're going to say, hey, so what does this look like for us? How do we love like that? So it's like four little statements kind of all playing off of one of these four things. So ways that God has loved us through Jesus. For one, purposeful. His love is purposeful. You go back to verse 1 in our text. The very beginning, he says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It's interesting, like his hour had come. This is really where the idea of, for the name of the series, came to me, or came from, because there's a whole lot covered in John's first 12 chapters. He goes through a lot of things that Jesus did, a lot of his experiences and uh, teachings and all this stuff, and a lot happens in 12 chapters. And then we get to chapter 13, and we're going to go through just in one night, several chapters from one night, and one interaction with the disciples. And then we're going to see his death and resurrection. And, And really, over the next 72 hours, a lot happens. And so we kind of see like, hey, the time is now. His hour had come. In other places in the Gospels, the Gospel writers will say, Jesus wasn't arrested here or he didn't go back to this place because his hour had not yet come. Well, now it's come. So he knows that. He knows that his hour had come. He's about to go to the cross. And it says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And when I, when I read that verse end, I was like, I wonder if it's this one word in the Greek. And it is. Tell us. This word tell us, which means the intended end or goal of something. So he loved them to the end, his intended end. Jesus didn't come just to have fun. It wasn't willy-nilly. He wasn't like spur of the moment. Oh, I guess I'll go down and, and be a, you know, take on flesh. It wasn't like he just wanted to experience what it was like to be human and just, you know, come down and see what happens. No, there was a plan. There was a purpose to his coming. There was an hour that he was looking forward to this whole time. And he had purpose in coming. You know, at this point, the fulfillment of that purpose was right in front of him. It was right in front of him, and he knew how hard it was going to be. He knew how hard it would be. If, if it were any one of us, I mean, just think about this. You can probably look ahead. You know, if you're in school right now, you look ahead in your semester, and you go, there's going to be a couple weeks along the way where it's going to be just brutal. And you just don't want to do it. Now, imagine that multiplied by a million times, you know, and you think of Jesus' stress in this moment, of looking ahead and knowing what's coming. He knew about the judgment of God and the wrath of God against sin. He knew about that because he is God, and he knew he was going to face it. And so here he is in this moment, but John tells us, because he experienced all this and lived it out, he said that Jesus loved them to the end, the intended purpose. He did not give up on the purpose He loved them to fulfillment of those purposes for him and for us. There isn't a thing, I want you to know that there's not a thing that God starts that he leaves unfinished. There's not a thing that he starts that he leaves unfinished, and that should be good news to us. Because for one, if Jesus didn't reach the end and flake out, if he had not reached the end, if he had flaked out on us because of the pressure was too much, we wouldn't have salvation. We wouldn't have the opportunity to be right with God. We'd be lost, stuck unable to make ourselves right. And again, we're going to get to it in chapters 18 and 19 when we get to that week. We're going to talk about his finished work on the cross. The time is now to trust in that finished work. 
But for now, let's just say, look, he says he reached the end. The debt has been paid. And his love for us went all the way to the end so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be redeemed. Not only did he finish that good work, he's doing a good work in every single one of you who have faith in him that he's not going to abandon. Philippians 1.6 says this, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Whatever he has begun in you, he will finish. He's not letting go of you. You are his forever if you are his right now. We're talking about a purposeful love. He's going to finish what he has started. But not only is it purposeful, it's also secure. His love is secure. And we look back at verses 3 through 5 for this. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel tied around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, and wiped them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Why would he do this? If you haven't heard of this before, the washing of the feet roll was something that a servant would do. And none of them wanted to place themselves in the spot of servant to wash each other's feet when they came in to have supper. And so Jesus, you know, he takes it upon himself. And so it seems like this would be, you know, beneath Jesus. And that's why Peter responds the way he does. He's like, no, 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 you, you should never wash my feet. Like, you're our teacher, you're our rabbi, you're we believe that you're the son of God and you're going to be out here washing our feet? What motivated the king of kings and the Lord of lords to do the work of a servant? Love is the obvious answer. Love, and not only just love, love that flowed from somewhere. Check out where Jesus' servant love flowed from in verse 3. Again, look at it. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Jesus knew where he stood with the Father. He knew where this would all end for him. In less than 24 hours, he would say from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, he would be bearing the weight of our sin. God's judgment, his Father's judgment would be falling on him. But even in that moment of taking on our sin and shame on the cross, where he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? and he's taken on this judgment for us and this shame for us, he still knew where he stood. He still knew who his father was because at the end, he says, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. He knew where he stood, and he knew where this was going to end. He knew that he was headed to the cross, but he also knew that the resurrection was coming. He knew where he was going to stand, where he was going to be with God. You can look at verse 31 and 32 and see that he knew that this was happening. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified. God's glorified in him, and he's going to be glorified. Uh, God will glorify him in himself. And so he's looking ahead, and he sees this. He knows where he stands with the Father and what's going to happen. He knew who he was. He knew who he was. He knew where he stood. He knew where he'd always stand. And he could see what was coming, going to the Father with all the things given into his hand. And so he endured what was coming in love from a place of security. And so we see how Hebrews 12, 2 puts it. I love this. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. For the joy that was set before him, that he knew was coming. He knew what the end was going to be. He knew where he stood, and so he endured the cross in love. 
He was secure as the second person of the Trinity, the Lord of all the earth, so secure in his identity that he could take the form of a servant and then die on the cross for us. It was a secure love. It was also a humble love. I mean, just that fact that Jesus took on the role of a servant washing feet shows his humility. And really, I think humility is founded on security. Often, what makes us not humble is insecurities in us. Insecurities about things. About things about ourselves or about our future or about our circumstances. That insecurity makes us turn inward. But here we see Jesus who knows who he is. And knows where he's going. And knowing who you are allows you to be free to seek someone else's good. And that's where Jesus was. And it goes again beyond what's happening in this moment in chapter 13. You see him just in hours, humbly receive false accusation, mocking, beating, judgment, and death. And I don't want us to get the wrong idea about what humility looks like. It wasn't that Jesus was a pushover. He didn't want to stir the pot too much, so he just took it. No, this is the guy who had all authority. This is the guy who knew who he was. He tossed temple tables and defied the religious leaders. It wasn't that he was a pushover. It was that humble control of his strength. Having all authority, he submitted himself to the will of the Father and then submitted himself to death on our behalf. You may have heard it said that humility is not thinking less of yourself but thinking of yourself less. So his humility is truly one of like setting aside what would be most convenient for him to selflessly serve others. Both in this moment of washing the disciples' feet, what would have been convenient for him is to do nothing or let somebody else take up that role as if they were ever going to notice that they needed to wash each other's feet. What would have been really convenient for him is in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's sweating drops of blood from the stress to say, you know what? Not only, God, is if there's, if, if there's another way, you know, but your will be done. No, instead he could have said, no, I'm not going to do that. But yet, humility, submitting himself to the Father. And we see this tangible example of this kind of love right here, you know, in this text, the washing of the feet. We look at this interaction recorded in uh, Luke's gospel, so from the same night in the Last Supper. So the same night, same kind of moments right here where he's talking to the disciples at the, at the Lord's Supper. He says this in Luke chapter 22. Okay, so here's what's going on. There's this moment where there's a dispute had risen among them as to which of them was going to be regarded as the greatest. Classic disciples, right? Classic humans. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? but I am among you as the one who serves. Quite literally, he said, I should have been reclining at table, and yet I got up and served. They're having this argument about who's the greatest. You know, I got to think, like, this is happening right there at the table with them, and that's got to be where verse 16 comes from in our text tonight. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. He said, if I did this for you, you ought to do this for one another. This kind of humble love and humble treatment of one another. And Jesus is saying, look at my love for you. I came to serve. Humble yourselves before one another and follow this example. So it's a humble love, but it's also undeserved. There's a fourth thing about his love. It's undeserved. Jesus washed Judas's feet. 
Judas being the one who betrayed him, turned him in for money. He knew what, Jesus, what Judas was about to do. He knew that Judas wasn't one of his own. And yet, he still served Judas in this tangible act of washing feet. Judas was never actually washed in the sense that Jesus was talking about with Peter in verse 8. He says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. But still, he experienced, he experienced an act of humble love from the Savior of the world. And I find that crazy, but it's not just Judas who received what he didn't deserve. It was really all of them. None of them deserved what Jesus had to offer. And Romans 5 tells us, while we were still ungodly and sinner enemies of God, he came and died for us. None of them deserved it, and neither do we. And Jesus tells them that something big is about to happen and that no one can follow him where he's going. He said, I'm about to, I'm about to go somewhere that none of you can follow me. But then Peter's adamant that he will. Absolutely. No, I'm going to follow you. I'll, I'll die for you. And Jesus has to break it to him. Peter, you're not as great as you think you are. You're going to deny me three times before the sun comes up. And he breaks this to him. And Peter's like, no, I, I so badly want to reciprocate this love that you show us. You, you've served us. You love us so well and so humbly and, and so fully. And I want, to, I want to reciprocate that same kind of love. But the fact is he couldn't. He couldn't. The love that Jesus had showed was undeserved. And what I love about this interaction with Peter is that Peter goes on to deny Jesus three times. And then later in chapter 21, which is what we're going to get to in the last week of the series, we're going to see how he restores Peter from that. But the fact remains that Jesus loves his disciples and loves us better than they or we deserve. His love is undeserved. So how do we love like that? How do we love like this? Jesus says, I give you this command just as I have loved you, so love one another. That seems a little unattainable to me. And we already said Jesus has loved us in a way that we couldn't for anybody else or for ourselves. He died for us. But he's still saying, I give you, I give you this example to follow as I've done in serving you, so you serve one another. So what is it, what is it that we're called to do? I mean, clearly he, he loves in a way that we could not reciprocate. But he also still calls us to love the way that he's loved, to follow his example. So how do we do that? And we have to admit at the forefront that whatever it looks like, we won't do it perfectly. We will struggle. We will fail. And Jesus has no misconceptions about us. He knows us through and through. He knows what we're going to struggle with. He knows that this, this kind of Jesus love, love like Jesus is not going to come naturally to us. Not all the time. He knows that even those of us who are in Christ, who have the Holy Spirit working in us, we have that Holy Spirit nature. We still have a sinful nature. And he knows that we're not going to get it right all the time. But he also knows that he has given us his spirit. And that's going to be the topic of conversation next week. 14, 15, 16. We're talking about the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does. Jesus, knowing that he's going to give this Holy Spirit, reminds us, or it tells us in the next chapters, that God, or that the Holy Spirit is going to remind us of his love. And so Jesus gives us this command knowing that we're not going to do it perfectly, but we're still going to be enabled to do it by the work of the Holy Spirit that's in us. And so how do we love the way he loved? Here's the four things. Start with the first one. Love with a purpose. Love with a purpose. So look, I'm not going to go real far down the road of the conversation of what love is and what love isn't. You know, you've heard all the things, the cliche, you know, love's not just a feeling. Um, you would know, leave it at that. Suffice it to say that love is not just a feeling. 
Jesus commanded his followers to love their neighbor as themselves. It was a command to be obeyed. I don't think he was saying we always have to feel something. So love is active. We act toward one another in love. Not always out of love-filled feelings, but often simply because he, who loved us, tells us to do so. So we see that uh, it's his love ultimately that motivates us to do this. And we see this in lots of places, but also uh, 1 John 4. So 1 John 4, 7 through 11 shows us like his love for us that he's shown us that we just talked about is what motivates us to love, not feelings. We act based on the love that we've been shown. He says this in 1 John 4, 7 through 11. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Not only has Jesus given us the example of love, he has loved us. He didn't just go out there and be like, here, let me do an example for you so that you'll know what to do. No, he has loved us fully, and his love becomes this controlling force in us behind all our actions and, and any time that we are acting in love toward one another as, as a believer, it's being motivated by his love. So we're to love with a purpose. And what purpose do we love them with? I ask the question, what purpose did he love them with? What purpose did he have for us when he loved us? And I think we see at least part of the answer is tucked into verse 8. Chapter 13, verse 8, Peter's saying, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. He wants to wash Peter. He wants Peter to be washed clean in him so that he could have a share with him. He wants us to know him, to be with him, and to inherit what he inherits. He wants us to have everything that he will have. And so that is the purpose that he had in loving us. We can love people with the same purpose at the forefront. Like, why do I love someone else? Why should I serve them? Why? What do I want for them? I want their greatest good. I want what Jesus wanted for them. For them to know him, to be like him, to inherit what he inherits, to be with him forever. And if we aim to love as Christ has loved us, then our actions and our intentions in every relationship in our lives will be infused with that purpose of helping them see and know Christ and become more Christ-like. So family, friends, whether they're lost, saved, all of them, there's this overarching direction behind our love for them that they may know Christ and become like him. People you're dating or trying to date. You want to think like, oh, I love this person, or I really want to get to that place where I love this person. Then what I should want more than anything for them is that they know Jesus and become more like him. And if a relationship with them can't help them do that, then I don't want that. Because what it looks like to really love them is to want them to know Jesus and to grow in him and to become Christ-like and be with him forever. Strangers. Random people we come into contact with. I can be compassionate and serve literally anyone because there's this deeper purpose embedded into every interaction and every moment that I love in order to point people to the great love of God for them. This is not a vague, general love. Oh, just be kind, be compassionate, you know, love people. Just, just be, be a sweetheart. No, like, that's not what our love is really about. Our love is a purposed love. 
that every action done toward someone else and word said about someone else or to someone else has the greater goal of pointing people toward Christ, the one who has loved us. We also love from a secure identity. Jesus was secure. He knew who he was. He knew where he was going. He knew what the end looked like for him. We, too, can know that and love from a secure identity. You know, often I think the reason our love for others misses the purpose that we just talked about is because we feel some sense of lack in ourselves. We're trying to make up for something in ourselves, trying to satisfy something in ourselves by our interactions with these other people. Like, I need something from them. We, we sense this need to feel love reciprocated back to us. I need something from this relationship. You know, feeling this sense of, like, lingering insecurity or dissatisfaction with life. And so often our love or what we think is our love toward other people is really self-motivated. It's not coming from a secure place where we know who we are and uh, we know we're satisfied. You know, we are sin naturally prone to self-preservation and self-fulfillment. We are sin naturally. Like our sin nature makes it natural for us to self-preserve and to try to get self-fulfillment. We try to get what we feel like we need from people and from things and from God. And we struggle to love freely because we're so focused on making sure that we're good, that our needs are met. And we can even become convinced that God doesn't fully love us because our life doesn't feel like it's that great. Our circumstances right now don't feel that great. So how can it be that God loves me? And we become convinced that just because God doesn't give us what we want or give us everything that we feel like we need, that he's not really looking after us and we have to look out after ourselves. And that could be because of past experiences of hurt in earthly relationships. Could be past experiences of hurt and you blame God for those things. Could be that Satan is just lying to you, telling you that God can't take care of you, that God doesn't care about where you're at, what you have, or how you feel. One thing I know is true. If there were no God who loved us, we would have every reason to self-preserve and self-fulfill. Because people hurt people, and we're selfish too, and we hurt other people. And if this world and all the other people in it were all that there was, and there was no God, yeah, you could never freely love without holding something back. You would always have to be looking out for yourself. But there is a God who loves us. He came here and lived as one of us, and then he died in our place and then rose again. And he knows us. He knows what we need, and he can absolutely give it. He can absolutely satisfy us. And if your faith is in Jesus for your salvation, it's a bold statement, but I think it's true. You will never actually lack a thing that he intends for you to have. I don't want to say you'll never lack anything that you feel like you need. But I will say you will never lack a thing that he intends for you to have, physically, spiritually, or emotionally. What he gives, allows, and even withholds from us, he does with purpose. It's a purposeful love. Because he holds all things in his hands, including you and me. And he does that with love that is beyond all understanding. He loves you. Can I tell you something? As a Christian in here, you cannot be more secure than you are in Christ. There is no greater security to be had than being in Christ. 
you can know exactly where you stand with him. You know, we, we went around on our mission trip a couple weeks ago, and we were asking people questions about what they believed, where they stood. And we were asking people, you know, how confident are you that if you died right now, that if there were a place called heaven, you'd, you'd go there? We gave them a scale of 1 to 10. It's interesting to hear how people answer that question. I think a lot of Christians would answer that question with like a, I don't know, I guess nine. I'm, I'm pretty sure. I'm like, y'all, you can answer that with a 10. You can answer that with a 10. You can know exactly where you stand with him. You can know without a doubt that he loves you. No matter what your circumstances are, you can know where you're going. Uh, you can know where you're going in the end of this thing with as much certainty as Jesus did. Jesus said, I'm going to the Father. I know where I'm headed. I know where this ends. He said, I know what I got to go through to get there. When I get there, I'm going to be there forever in paradise. I'm going to have all authority under me. He knows where he's going. He was going to the Father, and so are you. And you can know that with certainty. And it was enough for Jesus, enough security for him to love to the death. Literally. Loved them to the end. Is it not enough for us to love despite our circumstances? To know who we are, know where we stand with God, and know where we're going. So no matter what you feel right now, no matter what need or lack you might feel, no matter what Satan has told you God is holding back from you, stand secure. If your faith is in Christ, then you are in him. Seated at the right hand of the Father with him right now, and there is no better place for you to be. There is no more secure place to be. You will forever be with him. And any desire that in this life seems to be left unfulfilled will be forever fulfilled when you are with the Father in a place where sin and evil and death will be no more. So we can love from this secure identity. That's what we're called to do. And a third thing, we humbly love in selfless ways. We humbly love in selfless ways. I am not asking you to wash people's feet. I don't think that's what Jesus was saying. That, hey, you should wash other people's feet. I get weirded out when I see that happen at church. Or, you know, it's even weirder. It's when it happens at a wedding. Anybody been to a wedding where the groom or, you know, washes the feet? Some of you are like, well, that's what I wanted to do. I'm not trying to bash what your plans are. Um, but I feel like it's kind of weird. Just personal, personal opinion. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I don't think he's saying you ought to actually literally wash each other's feet. I think what he's saying is look for the opportunities where you can set aside your comfort, your agenda, and your position for the sake of someone else's needs, for the sake of looking out for somebody else's interests. Be the servant amongst the group. Be the one that goes out of their way to do for one another what nobody really wants to do for one another. Some of those disciples were thinking about a position of prominence. They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest, and Jesus says, consider how you might actually lower yourself instead. How about we go for that? So try this, consider in what context are you most likely to exalt your needs or your desires above the needs of others? I mean, literally think of something. Consider in what context or contexts do I automatically look after my own needs and my own desires above other people's? And then consider how you could tangibly begin to act in that context for the good of someone else. How could I intentionally redirect my efforts away from self-preservation 
away from self-fulfillment and toward the interests of others in the context when I, where I struggle with it most. Here's a fourth thing. Love despite the perceived worthiness of others. Jesus actually knew what other people were going to do to fail him, and he still served them. He still loved them. He died taking on the shame of sins that we hadn't even committed yet. Taking on the shame of sins that we still haven't committed. And yet, he loved us. And can I be honest with you for a second? Every person you ever love will let you down. There's a good chance that every person you've ever loved has let you down. No person you ever show love to will 100% deserve it. If we're going to love one another like Jesus loved us, then we're going to have to lean hard into his love for us and show love to people who are hard for us to love, who in some way do not deserve it. That person that you need to forgive, or that family member or friend who always seems to be letting you down, or that hypocritical person that you can't stand. Loving those people. People that we would perceive, they do not deserve it. We did not deserve it, guys. You don't know which of those people that you interact with might see God's love in you and actually turn to Christ in repentance. You don't know what could come of you loving selflessly when people don't deserve it. Jesus knew that Judas was going to die in unrepentance. He also knew that Peter was going to be an apostle and an amazing witness for Christ in the early church. He knew both of those things, and yet he served both of them. So, you know, we're not privy to that kind of info. We're just called to love. It's not easy. Praise God he doesn't leave us to figure it out on our own. Next week, we're going to talk about the Spirit, how he constantly reminds us of of Jesus' love for us through that Spirit and that purposeful, secure, sacrificial, and gracious love. He's going to help us to lean into that. And we're going to have to lean into that because here's the thing. It's not going to get any easier. It's not going to get any easier from here. If you found it hard to love people, it's not getting easier. So there's no time like now to love the way that he's called us to love. The time is now. Jesus said that this is how the world would see that we are his disciples. In verse 35. So may we be known by his love so that other people might be able to see him through it.